As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We got about 10 to 15 people down in the street. First, the tragedy. When something like this happens, people feel helpless. Then, the generosity. Donations were pouring in from all over the world. Nearly $6 million for victims of the Waukesha Parade attack, only some of it won't be going to victims. Nowhere on our website does it say direct payments to families. It says support for families. This week on Open Record, why local nonprofits want a cut. Again, that will be a very small percentage. And how one survivor feels about the motivation behind those donations. When these people opened their wallets and donated to the fund, it was for the victims. Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson, and I'm joined this week by Open Record's executive producer, Sarah Smith. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Brian. Good to be here. So we are recording this episode on Thursday, March 3rd, 2022. And in less than a week, the Waukesha County Community Foundation will begin distributing most of the nearly $6 million, $5.7 million to be precise, in donations that have been collected since the Waukesha Parade tragedy that occurred in November, just before Thanksgiving. The foundation says most of that money will be paid directly to parade victims and their families, but not all of it. Sarah, how people feel about that seems to depend on on who you talk to, but certainly there are some people who are not too happy about it. Right, and I think, you know, this is obviously a story that, um, you know, you did a lot of digging on, and it's, as with any investigative story, I feel like, the question that sometimes comes up with people is how did this start in the first place as being an issue that came to you or that you found out about? Obviously, when a major tragedy like this happens anywhere in the country, it's pretty natural that there's some sort of fundraising effort uh, people want to give. They they are naturally motivated uh, to, to give because from the heart, they just want to help, right? And so it's become uh, sort of a thing since all of these mass shootings and other mass crime events for there to be this singular fund that uh, is sort of a central source for those donations to go to. And that has, whenever you have a lot of money anywhere in one place, the question is always, okay, who's managing that money and where's it really going and who's trying to stick their hands in the cookie jar? And uh, there's a, per- a person who came to us, came to Fox 6 News, by the name of Anita Bush. Anita Bush, uh, first of all, has her own personal experience with mass casualty crimes. If you think back about 10 years ago, in fact, I think it'll be 10 years this summer, to the Colorado theater shooting, Aurora, Colorado, the movie theater. Uh, There were 12 people killed in a mass shooting there. Um, I think it was the uh, premiere of the Dark Knight movie. And, um, you know, so the theater was packed with people excited to see the new Batman movie. 
and um, and unfortunately, it tragically ended with 12 people being killed. Well, Anita Bush had a cousin who was one of the 12 people killed, and actually someone who has strong ties to the Milwaukee area. Um, Michaela Medic is her name. Uh, she, 23 years old, um, her father grew up in South Milwaukee, still has family here in the South Milwaukee Cudahy area. And, um, and so Anita has herself has strong ties to the Milwaukee area. But after that event, Anita says after her cousin died, after these others died, there were huge fundraising or huge amounts of donations that came in, but the victims weren't getting that money or they weren't sure where that money was going to be going and they felt like they were being left on the outside. So she worked with others to put together an effort to fight back and say, wait a minute, the victims are who that money was meant for. Victims and survivors. Obviously, the people who've died don't need the money, but they're family members. They've lost future income. They have funeral expenses. Obviously, there's the the you know emotional and mental health needs. So she fought with others to make sure that those Aurora, Colorado theater shooting victims got the money. And since then, she has continued with similar efforts in other cases. She saw what happened in Waukesha and started paying attention. And she watched closely what was going to happen with that money. She discovered what we're going to talk a little bit more about here in a moment, Sarah. She discovered that the Waukesha County Community Foundation's plan for that money did not include 100% of it going directly to victims. And so she contacted Fox 6 and raised some alarm bells. Right. So and I I still remember, you know, after this happened in November, that it was pretty quickly after the fact and people were donating and they wanted a, a central place to give money to. Um, and, you know, and, and, and if someone's giving money, they, I guess they assume, I, I guess I would assume also if I were giving money that this is what I want it to do. I want it to go to these families and these survivors um, who are dealing with the after effects um, of, of the tragedy. And so what is, you know, what is and how did this form, this Waukesha County Community Foundation, um, and how, I mean, how did they collect all the money? So the Waukesha County Community Foundation already existed. They they do a lot of uh, philanthropy. Uh, they, they deal with corporate donors. They set up funds for various purposes. Um, so they're familiar with this kind of thing, fundraising and fundraising for uh, these kinds of purposes. But they... Um, immediately after the parade occurred, decided we need this centralized fund. And in fact, I talked to Melissa Baxter, their executive director, who had just accepted the job but hadn't even started um, when the parade attack occurred. Um, she started. She and others started studying what other communities had done after mass casualty events. They looked for best practices, and one of the things they learned was you need a centralized fund to make sure the donations are going to one place and not scattered all over the place where people can, there can be fraud, there can be concerns about the money not getting where it's supposed to go. So the, the idea behind this was to centralize the, the fundraising and the collection of those donations. So they did that. They set up something called the United for Waukesha Community Fund. And the word United may well have something to do with one of the big partners in that, which is United Way of Milwaukee, Greater Milwaukee and Waukesha County. They were also instrumental in getting this fund created. So you've got United Way and the Waukesha County Community Foundation teaming up to create the United for Waukesha Community Fund. They create a logo, they get the word out. That way, the word gets out not just nationwide, worldwide, that this is where the money should go if you want to help these people. Now, understand there's also individual fundraisers in the era of GoFundMe. 
And we've seen a lot of these. A lot of the parade victims had friends or family or others who set up individual GoFundMe accounts. That's entirely separate. Everyone has a right to set up a GoFundMe account or to raise money on their own. And those funds go directly to whoever is administering those funds. And we know that GoFundMe as an organization did some vetting to say these are the legitimate fundraisers connected to the Waukesha Parade. They created an entire page. And we know a couple of million dollars went to those. That's separate. This is that one centralized fund created by the Community Foundation, created by United Way. All the other donations are going there. So they end up amassing a huge amount of money. And we know it ended up being, it, it, at this point now, a few months in, is $5.7 million. And so those are donations from people who've simply gone online, people who've gone to fundra cookie fundraisers and, and fundraising dinners. They bought T-shirts, other things. Um, th that money from a lot of different sources is now collected in that one place. So obviously, you know, like you were just saying, this 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 larger fund of money, the you know, the, from the community foundation, um, is different than those individual GoFundMe accounts. So, like, are there pros and cons to that big lump sum versus like me starting a GoFundMe for one of my family members who? was killed in the tragedy? There certainly are potentially some pros and cons to both. I mean, if you look at GoFundMe, for instance, until there is some vetting, you don't necessarily know who's setting them up. Is that person going to use the money for what they say they're going to? Once you gift the money, there are no strings attached to it. You you don't, if you give to GoFundMe, there's nothing that says you have to spend it in this way. It's, here's the money, I'm giving it to you, this is a gift. And now, you know, we, I trust that you're going to use it for the purpose we've said. So with GoFundMe, there may not be that certainty that it's going to be audited, vetted, and, and, and used in, in the way that you intend. We do know that as an organization after a mass tragedy incident like this, that GoFundMe, the sort of parent company, did some work, took some effort to ensure that these particular funds were in fact connected to legitimate victims, that they were intended to be used for those purposes again doesn't mean they're following what happens to the money afterwards but these we knew were at least set up by people who had legitimate connections to real victims from the parade the benefit to a centralized fund like this is first of all these are uh you, you look at someone like the waukesha county community foundation or organization like that you look at united way they have a lot of experience with dealing with large amounts of money they have the personnel with the expertise to account for it, to make sure it does go into in, you know sort of the right places and people are watching where it goes that there isn't fraud. You also have uh, fundraising capabilities that they have, so they know how to get the word out in the right places to generate more funds for these things, as opposed to just waiting for people to seek them out. They know how to get the word out. So there are advantages, I think, probably to both. The concept of the centralized fund is one that is now considered. Uh, by the National, I think it's National Institute for Victims of Crime. I'm not certain of the name of the organization. I think that's it. it might be the National Center for Victims of Crime. But their best practices say that this centralized fund is one of the key things you need to do when it comes to fundraising after a mass casualty crime. So, so there is certainly benefit to that. There's nothing wrong with the individual GoFundMes, but this gives anyone else anywhere the safety of knowing this is a legitimate fund. So we talked about Anita Bush a little bit um, and kind of how she started this Victims First and everything, um, but she also co-founded the National Compassion Fund. Um, can you explain what that is? Yeah, so so when after the Colorado theater shooting in which her cousin was killed, uh, Anita started, you know, these efforts to make sure funds were getting 
to victims. And then she created something that uh, is called Victims First. It's a nonprofit organization that advocates for victims of mass casualty crimes. She also helped to co-found the National Compassion Fund, which is one giant national fund that is intended for uh, assisting after mass casualty crimes. And they've gotten involved in a lot of big ones from the Parkland, Florida school shooting to um, the uh, Orlando nightclub shooting to the Las Vegas massacre to uh, all sorts of uh, mass casualty crimes across the country, including the mass shooting in Miller Valley at uh, at Miller Coors. Um, and the uh, they got involved and helped after the Roundies distribution uh, shooting in Oconomowoc. So they have been involved in a lot of these things and their primary purpose, their sort of mantra, their model is that 100% of donations should go directly to victims, survivors, and their families, not to other organizations, not siphoned off for other purposes, not taken for administrative fees and costs and salaries, 100% in direct payments to victims. That's what their intention is. They believe that's what the intent of the donors is. is this is money for victims, and so the victims should get it. So that's what the National Compassion Fund, one of its big roles is ensuring that 100% of the money that comes in goes out directly to victims. That word directly becomes key because what we discovered in the Waukesha situation is there is some disagreement over whether uh, money that doesn't go directly to victims is nonetheless still supporting victims. And then it becomes maybe a bit of a game of semantics as a donor, are you okay with that? And that's what Anita Bush raised here. The United for Waukesha Fund, um, you know, we talked about the name and, and how the word united um, may have a part uh, or be named that in part because of the partnership with United Way. So what role do they play in all of this? Um, maybe besides being a, a partner with with the Waukesha County Community Foundation. Um, and then why did that raise some eyebrows? So the Waukesha County Community Foundation administers this fund, but they set up a committee of nine people to manage the fund and to determine how the funds would be distributed. One of those nine committee members is a woman named Nicole Agrisano. She is vice president of Community Impact for United Way of Greater Milwaukee and Waukesha County. Um, United Way, its mission as an organization is to support nonprofit organizations, not to support individual victims of incidents or mass casualty crimes. It's to support nonprofits. They do have an enormous amount of experience in fundraising and fund distribution, in assisting with charities that do wonderful, incredible things in our community. And so, but but their their role is to support nonprofits and then indirectly then those nonprofits support the people who need services or, or need money and things like that. In this case, uh, Nicole Angrisano is part of this committee that's determining how to distribute the funds, and they came up with a protocol. That protocol is sort of the official guiding document that says, here's how we're going to collect the money, here's how it's going to work when we determine where it's going to be distributed. And in that protocol, which is published online, you can, you can find it on the Waukesha County Community Foundation's website, that protocol lays out the timeline of events that the the funds would be raised through February 28th was the deadline. Um, so the, the claims have now been closed, but they were allowing people to make claims on that. If you were a victim or if you believe you uh, uh, should get some of those funds, you could make a claim. It laid out the 
sort of tiered system for who would receive these funds. And, and one of the things it said was that people who were killed in the parade attack, their survivors, their family members would get the top priority. Um, people who were seriously injured, hospitalized, um, have long rehabs ahead of them. They are sort of next on the list. People who suffered injuries but maybe didn't have to stay in the hospital but still have hospital bills or rehabilitation or other costs ongoing or mental health concerns that arise from this. They're on that list. And even people who merely attended the parade and witnessed this trauma, this traumatic event, um, certainly they could have post-traumatic stress issues and, and mental health needs. So all of them are included in this protocol as those who uh, are, uh, you know, should have access to this money. But then the protocol did one other thing, and it said that there are a number of nonprofits in the area that provide mental health services, and it named eight nonprofit organizations. And it said, these eight organizations are among those, and there could be more, that will receive priority grant uh, or eligibility for priority grant funding. What's not clear is what that means, priority. I mean, priority sounds like you come first, but we have talked since to both United Way and the Community Foundation who say, no, 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 the victims get priority. But in particular, United Way's Nicola Grisano was very clear in saying nonprofits deserve some of this money. They should get a cut. She believes they should get at least some of this because of the added burden on mental health services after an event like this. So those nonprofits then, you know, so they're listed in there. And, and while, you know, the, you know, United Way and stuff is saying, oh, no, this is, you know, the, the victims take priority. Um, so why, you know, why do these, first of all, why, you know, why do the protocols, why do they matter? And then how much is going to these nonprofits? And, and, and I mean, we talked a little bit about why, because these are nonprofits that offer services to assist that, you know, so how much, did you find out how much is going to the nonprofits? Well, I did, well, roughly, but it wasn't an easy thing. They didn't want to answer this. This was not a question that I think either the Community Foundation or United Way was particularly eager to talk about, um, especially as they were under fire, under criticism, public criticism from Anita Bush with the National Compassion Fund, who's, you know, they spoke highly of her efforts. One of the first things Nicole Angrosano said to me when we did our interview on this for the story was, you know, that she wanted to commend her for the great work she does. So Anita Bush is, is not just a, a nobody name coming out of the woodwork. She is the co-founder of the National Compassion Fund. She is the founder and president of Victims First. So what she says carries some weight, but she's been highly critical in particular of United Way because she knows that United Way's mission is to help nonprofits. And, and Anita Bush's feelings are that these funds should be in every case 100% directed to victims. Um, when I spoke to uh, Ms. Angrisano for the story, she was clear in saying that she felt this was going to victims, maybe not directly, but nonprofits support victims. And she said that on their website, when they solicited donations, their website said that, you know, if you want to support the families uh, of those uh, injured or killed or whatever, I'm, the exact wording I don't have in front of me, but it said if you want to support the families Here's where you can donate. And I asked her about that. I said, y your own website says support the families. And she said, well, we believe nonprofits are part of that support. Um, so it becomes a case of or a question of semantics. Did donors intend for this money to go directly to victims only? Did they intend for it to go to whatever the community needs? It is a community fund, not a victims fund. Um, and, and are they OK with it going to nonprofits? And then the biggest question is you asked, how much? What's the split here? So I asked uh, both 
Melissa Baxter of the Community Foundation and Nicole Ingrisato of United Way. How much are you talking about for nonprofits? And they, they both deferred to each other initially. Uh, Melissa Baxter said, well, that's really for the committee to decide. And the committee has nine members, one of them including the mayor of Waukesha, the county executive and others, and of course, United Way, um, Nicole Ingrisano. So Melissa Baxter says, well, they, they're the ones who are going to decide that. And then I ask Ms. Ingrisano, well, then what's the, what's the cut? How much? What do you think is fair? And she said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defer that. The Community Foundation is the one actually operating this fund. So they were pointing the fingers at each other. I pressed Melissa Baxter a couple of times, and she said, it's going to be small. I mean, very small. I'm talking small. And finally, I just said, do you have just a rough idea? What are you thinking? And she said, no more than 5%. So upon further pressing, she said it would be no more than 5%. Now, out of $5.7 million, that's about $285,000. So you could step back and say, okay, 285000 out of the $5.7 million, the rest goes directly to victims. Some might say, that's fine. I'm okay with that. We think that's fair. Anita Bush doesn't feel that way. Anita Bush says 100% should go directly to victims. Nonprofits have all kinds of other potential funding sources. Um, they have access to government grants that come out directly because of mass casualty incidents. The federal government will, in fact, have grant funding available. And Nicole Agrisano acknowledged to me, yes, we're going to apply for those grants. Those will be available. So Anita Bush's point is these professional fundraising organizations, these professional nonprofits, they have other sources. Victims don't. This was money meant for victims. And then it goes to the question of donor intent. Did donors who opened up their wallets and pocketbooks and got out their credit cards, did they intend to give to the 11-year-old girl whose face they saw on television who was seriously injured in the parade, the little boy whose family has now lost him because he was uh, you know, walking with his baseball team, the, the, the family members of the dancing grannies who were killed, or did they mean to give it to Impact 211, a United Way partner since 1965 that has, you know, its own stream of contributions and grants already. And, and that's where the criticism of Anita Bush comes from, is they have their own stream. They don't need this. The argument in favor of the nonprofit is their own stream of money up to this point depends on a certain amount of services they have to provide. This parade puts a demand on those services um, that is greater than expected, and they should get some of this as well so they can provide the proper amount of support. Now, I want to be clear. I named Impact 211. They have told me they do not plan to uh, apply for any of this money, even though they were named as eligible for priority grant funding. In fact, of the eight charities that were named as eligible for priority grant funding, only one, as of the time we aired the story, which was a few days before the deadline, only one had formally applied for the money. Um, we don't know who that was. The foundation says they don't want to say until the fund distribution decisions have been made and all of that has been audited, and that could still be a matter of weeks. Anita is obviously, you know, close to the situation because, you know, her relative was killed in Colorado, obviously started this kind of snowballed that into what it is now. Um, but even closer to this tragedy is someone that you talked with for this story. Um, a man who was at the parade that night with his daughters actually watched his niece get run over. Um, and so, you know, even again, just kind of digging even deeper into this and getting more local with it. How does he feel about this whole 
issue. Well, that's uh, Ryan Koenke is his name. We interviewed him for this uh, this story. Um, Ryan Koenke is a U.S. Army veteran who served in Iraq and had been on bases that were attacked by rockets. And he described what he witnessed in this parade as being a lot like that in terms of the fear, the 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 nightmares that followed. Um, he said it reminded him of, of his time in Iraq, uh, you know, in the air raid sirens going off and so on. That level of fear, that level of, of, of trauma. Um, and, and that's saying something, right? So he's obviously experienced a lot himself, but his niece obviously experienced quite a bit more. His, uh, I believe, 11-year-old niece um, was uh, Jessalyn Torres. You may know her and may be familiar with her because of a statement she made in the hospital. She was run over, suffered severe injuries, organ damage, broken bones, cracked skull, and so on. Um, when she woke up in the hospital, one of the first things she said to her parents, doctors, whoever was listening was, tell them to just glue me back together. Which, it's a heartbreaking comment, right? But in, in many ways, it was a young girl being lighthearted, like, you know, trying to keep her parents, you know, I'm sure her parents are in tears. She's trying to keep their spirits up. Just tell them to glue me back together. Um, she's been through, obviously, a tremendous amount. I asked Ryan, what do you think about this? And it wasn't immediately an easy answer for him. He struggled a little bit, but ultimately he came down on the side of, I think the people who made these donations meant to help Jessalyn. They meant to help people who suffered in this parade. They didn't mean to help professional nonprofits. And he actually called me back after our interview and he said, I want to make sure that's what you say, because that's how I feel. I've thought about this and that's how I feel. Now, everyone doesn't agree with him who was affected by this parade in one way or another. I spoke to you might remember the story we did not long ago where we interviewed uh, another of the Waukesha Extreme dancers and her parents, Olivia Stover, a, a you know eight-year-old girl injured in the parade, and her parents, they've been through so, so much. They're still trying to make sense of all of this. I asked her father, who loved the reporting we did on, on, on her case, he, he said, you know, I, I'm not so, I don't feel so bad about that. I think the nonprofits do great work, and if they get a little bit of it, I'm okay with that. So, so Nick Stover's feeling was, this is okay. Ryan Koenke's feeling is, this is wrong. I talked to one other person who was the son of one of the dancing grannies who was killed in the parade. And he, he asked me a key question. He said, well, I want to know how did they advertise it? Did they say this was money that was going directly to victims or not? Because if they said it was money going directly to victims, that's misleading and it's wrong. If they didn't, I'm fine with it. And so that comes back to the ultimate question of donor intent. What did they think when they were donating? And that's why I really zeroed in on the, the United Way's website, because United's, United Way's website did use words that would make you think, I believe a reasonable person would look at it and say, I'm donating to the victims. But they, again, in, in parsing words, said, well, we said we were it was to support victims. And I'm going to read what that says exactly. I've got it in front of me now. The United for Waukesha Community Fund page on United Way's website says, In the wake of the tragedy at the Waukesha Christmas Parade, our hearts are with our Waukesha neighbors, family, and friends. Those looking to support the impacted families are invited to contribute to the United for Waukesha Community Fund, and it explains what that is. It goes on to say, The United for Waukesha Community Fund will support the needs of the families impacted by this tragic event. United Way's take on that is, Supporting nonprofits supports the needs of those families. Others, Anita Bush, views that and says, 
you didn't say we'll support nonprofits that support the families. You said we'll support the impacted families. So that money should go directly to the families. And so is that misleading? It's, you know, that's for someone else to decide. We wanted to present that so viewers could see it, so they could make that determination for themselves. Um, But that is uh, what Ryan Koenke's interpretation was, is that that was meant directly for families and, and survivors, and that's who should get it. So, you know, obviously this was kind of a little, even before your story aired. So you talked to Ryan about how he felt about this and got his answer. Um, at some point you talked to investigative stories or like Jenna's contact six stories. You get a follow-up, either whether that's emails from people or a phone call or maybe another story. Um, and as with this one, you know, uh, we actually got a, a press release that came out, a statement from the Waukesha County Community Foundation. So they came out saying, hey, 100% of individual donations will be going directly to the victims. So, you know, we read that as Fox 6 and you see it. What does that mean to you? Well, and this is actually something that Melissa Baxter had said to me in our interview, and I challenged it at the time, and it didn't end up in the final, you know, four-minute story that aired in the broadcast. But it was the question of, remember she had said, about 5%, no more than 5% of this fund would go to nonprofits. But then she said they do have a corporate donor who donated to that singular fund, the United for Waukesha Community Fund, who'd given them permission to give some of that money to whatever causes, not just directly to victims, but to nonprofit organizations who had explicitly given them that permission. Um, And so she clarified that your donation, if you made one, will go directly to victims. The donations going to nonprofits are only coming from this one corporate donor. So when they say in that statement, 100% of individual contributions are going to families directly, it's 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 a bit of, again, semantics. What do you mean by that? It's The word individual is important. They're saying 100% of individual or, or donations from grandma at home who got out her checkbook and wrote a $25 check, that's going to go to families. But the big corporate donor, we're going to use their funds to give it to the nonprofits. The, The problem with that sort of parsing of things is there's only one fund. There's not, there aren't separate funds from corporate donors and individual donors. There's one fund, there's 5.7 million in it. Either 5.7 million is going to families or part of the 5.7 million is going to families. And in this case, we know it's part of it. Most of it, 95%, they say. Um, whether those dollars, dollars are fungible. They can, it doesn't matter where they come from. If they go to one place, they're commingled. So the corporate donation went into the same pot as the other donations and they're pulling from that pot. So you can say, well, the dollars we're pulling out were the dollars that came from the corporate people. So you can feel better that that your personal check that was written isn't going there. In the end, it's an interesting argument because I think I, I would say it's a questionable argument because there aren't separate funds. There's one singular fund, and and they're saying some of those funds are going to nonprofits. But I think probably to make people who donated and wanted to help the little girl who was run over who said, you know, put, just glue me back together, they want to make sure those people feel that's where their donation went. And for the most part, it is because, again, 95% of it is going there. Um, uh, you know, whether you think 95% is not enough, it should all be 100%. We know Anita Bush feels that way. We know that she's had a lot of influence nationally with that model. Um, but, uh, you know, the question is whether or not someone who donated the money feels that's okay. And this was the Community Foundation's 
explanation. Right. So like, I mean, so that was their explanation. And when I, I remember when I read the statement, when it came in our inbox, I, I read it twice because I was trying to find, you know, are they saying that Brian's story was incorrect? Are they saying that maybe he misread something or didn't get all the information? So, I mean, they weren't suggesting your story was wrong, were they? No, I mean, I think that I think that's why I wanted to clarify that, because I think you could you could read that and think, well, his story said that some of it was going to nonprofits. But they're saying right here that 100 percent of these individual donations are going to the families. So so which is it? That's the parsing of words. 100 percent. They're, they're saying that 100 percent of donations that came from people like you and me and, and you know, grandma, so and so. Those are going to the families directly, but it's these corporate donations that they will take some money and redirect to nonprofits. Um, however you look at that, as I said, there's a total of $5.7 million. How much of it is going directly to families and how much is going to professional nonprofits? We know that they've said it's roughly 5% that will go to these nonprofits, but we don't know for certain and we don't know who those nonprofits are. Because they haven't, you know, that stuff is still happening sort of behind the scenes. It's a private foundation. Um, they have promised transparency. They have promised me in this interview. Um, they have promised others that they would be transparent about where the money is going. So the breakdown of that distribution should be coming out once this process is complete. The money is supposed to start going out. There's already been about a million that's been distributed mostly to families of those who lost loved ones in the parade. But the main distribution begins on March 5th. And that's just coming up here, obviously, in a couple of days. After that, I think about a week after that, auditors will begin reviewing the distribution plan and uh, and will account for where all the money has gone, is yet to go. And at some point after that, Melissa Baxter tells me uh, there will be more information about that. Um, I presume at that time we'll find out how much went to nonprofits and which ones so we can then evaluate things like, well, how much money did that nonprofit already have in the bank? Um, what kind of contributions do they get outside of a fund like this? Of the, I, I will tell you, we didn't go deep into this in the story, but of the eight charities they named, one of them was uh, Project Ujima at Children's Hospital or Children's Wisconsin. Now, granted, that that fund, Project Ujima, is, is a small piece. It's not everything Children's does, but there is no 501c3 nonprofit called Project Ujima at Children's Wisconsin. Children's Wisconsin is the nonprofit. And they have assets of $1.3 billion. They have annual contributions and, and grants uh, in the tens of millions. So certainly someone could look at that and say, if they were someone who got, if they were, if children's got part of these funds, boy, do, do they really need that? Now, I don't have any indication that they did apply for it. They're part of it, but they were one of the charities named as potential recipients. There are others, Rogers, um, which provides a lot of mental health services, but also has a huge, uh, you know, uh, they have a huge bank account. Um, they've got you know, a foundation with a lot of assets. They get a lot of contributions. That would probably have raised some eyebrows. I don't know if they're going to be the ones. There are some smaller ones. Um, there's, I think, Healing Hearts of Waukesha County much smaller amount of money in the bank. And it may be that if this stressed their, uh, you know, their resources, that maybe this is an appropriate use. Again, not my place to say what is or what isn't. We know what Anita Bush feels like. And, and she's coming at this saying it doesn't matter. 100% should go to the victims. And that's a good time for us to go off the record. This is the part of the podcast where we get a little more casual, have a little fun by answering a question 
for which we have not prepared, or in this case, again, for which I have not prepared, because it is executive producer Sarah Smith who comes up with this question, and she's here with this week's off-the-record question. What do you have in store today, Well, you know what? As you were doing this little intro for me, I realized, again, um, that... You know, if it's just going to be you and me, maybe I should have Jenna write up a question and then I can open it and then we can both be surprised. Anyway. Um, but, you know, that's if you look back, it wasn't that long when we but pre-pandemic, we yeah, used to have in an envelope. envelopes that we open live. Well, not live, but while recording. No, well, right, right, right. In the process but of, I will and say it was, it was a nice surprise for listeners. Every, every, every week we want someone to submit an open record or an off the record question. And uh, nary, nary a question has come in. <laughs> I also want to be clear that there aren't any real rules behind that question. No. I mean, you know, hopefully it's something that's a talker. But I remember in the beginning when we were doing this, a lot of the questions were sort of more job and journalism yes. related. Like, what's the hardest part of doing yeah. your job? Or what's what the, when have you been the yeah. most scared on a story? And now we're into the, you know, like favorite candy bars and <laughs> oh, I've really brought how many down chuggas. The bar. <laughs> how, <laughs> no, but somehow, somehow how many chuggas before the choo-choo yeah. becomes the biggest talker there is. So that's why I say there's no rules. Right. But we do want your submissions. I mean, I'm going to give you the email address coming up in the, the end of this podcast again. And, and I want you to listen because I want you to write it down and I want you to send us Ow. your open record question idea. It'll be great. Okay. So today's is, what is something you heard or learned, learned um, as a kid that just is not true? So maybe your parents said it to you in a way to get you to not do something. Um, I will say that the first couple things that come to mind are if you sit too close to the TV, you'll go blind. <laughs> if uh, if you swallow your gum that you're chewing, a uh, gum tree is going to grow in your belly. So like I never heard that one. I always thought that the gum, like I had, I had read or heard, I don't think my parents told me this, but I feel like the gum was going to sit in your gut forever. Yeah, like seven years. I literally go, at yeah. one point thought I right. heard like, oh, it'll be in your belly for seven years. It never breaks down. Like styrofoam. Like, okay. <laughs> so, of course, I never swallowed my gum. And then when you did, you were like, <gasps> I swallowed my gum. It's fine. Um, and, and what's the deal with seven years, by the way? I don't because you like you walk under a ladder, seven years bad <laughs> no. luck. You swallow gum, seven years in your stomach. Um, or you're in a marriage after seven years. You better really fight right? for the things. Seven year that's itch the, or know, whatever whole, it's right. called. Yeah. yeah. So what is it about seven years? I don't know. Anyway, so it was that, and it was. I was just trying to think of like even others of you know carrots make your eyes better, so you better eat your carrots. Or you eat too many carrots, you'll turn orange. Yes. Mm. Which I don't know why anyone would tell you that because carrots are good and you wouldn't want to warn someone off of right, eating carrots. Right, right. Like, what's the problem with carrots? I don't know. Maybe the other vegetables felt unloved. <laughs> if you eat too many Cheetos, your fingers will turn orange. That's, that's a whole that's different That's not story. wrong, though. <laughs> that, that's something that's true. What, so what, what was I told as a kid that turned out to not be true at all? I, I that, That's such a tough one because I'm trying to think back about sort of false assumptions or beliefs I had about the world and, and maybe where they came from. I mean, I think, well, I, I, this one, it wasn't something somebody told me. It was just one of those things that like, as times change, you go, Oh yeah, that's, that was, that was, a that was a naive uh, belief. I remember I started out in radio um, and I made, you know, just terrible money. I made a thousand dollars a month, um, $12,000 my first year. And, but, it was my $12,000. And I was like, hey, that's my money. I, ha I have money. That's great. But it all went away very quickly with rent and, and you know, utilities and groceries and whatnot. I remember thinking at the time, if I could just make $24,000 a year, $2,000 a month, I'd be set. I would never need another thing. 
but that's the tr- the thing in life is you make twenty four thousand, you say, but I need thirty six thousand. Yeah, you make thirty six thousand, I need enough. whatever. And you know, I, I don't know where you get to the point where you go, no, okay, this is actually enough. But I think that's maybe one of the things you you realize as you grow up is there is never an enough because no. you fill it with something. Yeah, yeah. And, and kids in particular. Uh, sort of because of them, you fill it with all sorts of things. So, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah it, you know, I mean, there's daycare. You didn't get done with that. And then there's, you know, all sorts of other expenses. And then pretty soon there's college, um, which is the part I'm going through. So I don't know, maybe my naive assumption about the world when I was younger was that there would be an amount that was enough. And it doesn't seem like it, it matters. Right. So there's almost no point. <laughs> there's almost no point. Making more because right. well, it'll I'll just spend more. Right. Well, it's like having um, having a bigger house. You're just gonna put more stuff in it. You know, it's not like oh, it's more space to move around. No, it's more rooms to put stuff. Um, I did while you were talking. I was listening, but I also did Google literally things you were told as a kid that aren't true. <laughs> and it was um, a couple of them which made me laugh. Are wait an hour after eating before going swimming so you don't cramp up. Oh, now see that? Okay, uh, that that one. Yeah, that's not legit. No, it's not. I, I, I always thought you. St- I, I still thought, yeah, you'll you'll get cramps. You got to wait at least half hour. Don't don't jump in the pool. No, it that's, just that's it, just made up. It is made up. I don't know. Yeah. Was that to keep kids from puking in the yes, pool? Yes, I think so. <laughs> and then if you go outside with wet hair on a cold still day, still a worthwhile reason. Yeah, that's fair. If you go outside with cold hair on a wet day, you catch a cold, which is obviously not true because cold. Well, that actually that's one of the big ones. And I, I, you know, the whole you're, you're gonna. My wife still says that is you when you put a coat on, you're gonna catch cold. And, and I still have to explain, that's not how that works. <laughs> like, that's, you're going to be cold, I'm no but that's not MD, how you but... <laughs> a cold. Um, and, you know, it, so I, it, I would hope after the pandemic we all understand that's not how things spread. But, um, yeah, I, I, I still, my son is 14 years old. He's a freshman in high school, and I can't get him to wear a coat to school when it is five below zero. Because his response is, Dad. I'm going right into the school. Yeah, they don't have recess or anything, right? Like, I mean, high school. They don't have recess. He doesn't use his locker at all. He carries everything all day long. And I think a lot of the kids do that now. We always use our locker between classes. So he doesn't want to carry a coat around all day. It's fair. And and I I get that. But but I keep saying, if there's fire drill, if there's a, you know, who knows what. Yeah, but if there's a fire drill, he's not going to have time to go to his locker. I mean, not that he would put it in his locker because he doesn't use his locker, which is back to the whole. (laughs) Sarah. don't add sense. <laughs> I'm to just this. also saying coats are trying coats are to win an argument here. What I have not resorted to is telling him he's going to catch cold because I know that's not true. That's fair. <laughs> um, so, so the, I mean that that's a that's a big one. What, what, like the, those, they almost seem like the old like not wives, wives' tales. tales yeah, if that's the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't know if there were others that that. What did you have on that list that you pulled up? Um, the, some of them that I had said already, like sitting too close. Um, Okay, this one on, on this article says, dropping a penny from the Empire State Building wouldn't come close to killing anyone. And then apparently Mythbusters tested it out, and no. But don't think about trying it, it says. Touching frogs won't give you warts. Or, you know, I guess the oh, lie would see, be would yeah, give I, you warts. I believe, I believe that one. Yeah. Cracking your knuckles will give you arthritis. Is that not why? It's not I'm true, no. To, no, as I crack all my I'm starting to feel like oh. maybe I need to start taking arthritis medication. No. <laughs> no. Um, you know, the joints start to hurt more as you, you, know, well. you, you get up there. That's true. Yeah, a lot of these are reading in the dark will make you go blind. <laughs> not really. What, what was the one that stuck out to you? Like, what was the one? I just, I, I think about the gum one a lot because, I, I, I mean, not that I swallowed a lot of gum as a kid, but I chewed a lot of gum, you know, bubble gum and all that other weird, gross stuff. Double bubble. Um 
but I was always so cognizant to be like, I have to spit it out because if I swallow it, and then the minute you accidentally did it, I literally thought like, this is the end of me. This little piece of pink gum is the end of Sarah. So, and my son who, who is five, almost six, um, this was probably a year ago now, but he accidentally swallowed, you know, kind of went, kind of breathed in, swallowed it, you know, got a little scared about it, but then was like, what's going to happen to me? Because <laughs> it's like a piece of chewing on rubber, you know, but I, you know, of course the, the joker in me was like, oh, dude, you're, that's not good. And he's like, what do you mean? It's not good. So, you know, I, I have to say, not only did I swallow gum at times, I swallowed a lot of things I probably, you know, I, I shouldn't have that I, w- I should have been worried about. Like, I, used, I I was always someone who liked to, I, I would chew on things. I would chew on pen caps. I mean, pen caps are, they are, you they swallowed don't stand a, pen a chance cap? around me. No, no, oh. not the pen, but I mean, I would chew on, that was my okay. example of things I chewed oh, on. Oh, thanks. Okay. But, but when I was, when I was younger, when I was a boy, I would actually, coins, I would, which what? I think now they're so disgustingly <laughs> oh my gross. Oh God, Brian. I, I think the reason I have not had COVID yet is because Stop. I sucked on, you nickels sucked on nickels as a child. I am immune to all sorts of things. Oh my gosh, Brian, this that. is a revelation. So I, because of that, <laughs> I, 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 would, I would have a coin in my mouth often. That's so gross. Because I just thought it was like a thing to sort of chew on. <laughs> and I breathed in and realized I had a nickel in my esophagus oh my and gosh. I better swallow it because otherwise I'm going to choke. So I swallowed it. And then I thought I have a nickel in my stomach. <laughs> Do I tell anyone? Oh my gosh. Wait, how old are you? Should I go how to the doctor? How old are you right now when this happened? I, like old enough to 10? know. Okay. Yeah, that's old enough. I mean, to yeah, know. not 10. like two years okay. old, like t- 10. Holy and I'm cow. thinking, do, do I do I say anything? Will it will it come out? Will it stay there like gum? I mean, if gum's there seven years, I might still have a nickel in my stomach. Will it today. grow a money tree? I don't know. <laughs> That's what you should have been hoping for. It it hasn't happened. <laughs> that Sarah has not occurred. So no, if you swallow money, it will not grow into a tree. Oh, that's um, wild, can, Brian. Can that is wild. I don't chew on money anymore, but I, I will tell you actually where I think I stopped the whole putting all sorts of things in my mouth just because. Well, yeah. I what was the threshold? Where. Well, it, it was it was it was a moment of embarrassment. It was in eighth grade. I still remember it. Seventh, seventh or eighth grade. I was in middle school and I was in the lunchroom, and I don't know if you remember, um, back in the day when ding dongs came in aluminum foil, like wrappers, mm-hmm. right? And you could ball them up, and I have mercury fillings, and if you ball them up and you touch them, <laughs> it would give you a shock, right? It was like like a conductor yes. of electricity. And I used to mess around with it, so I would ball up the ding dong wrapper and I'd stick it in my mouth and I'd chew on it. <laughs> And, and I remember a, a classmate who was, I look back, I mean, he was, he was a jerk, but he walked up to me as deadpan as he could. And he handed me a piece of, he balled up a piece of paper and he handed it to me. And I looked at him and he said, something for you to eat. <gasps> oh. And I turned around and there was a table of other students Oh. laughing hilariously. Oh, and I no. just felt humiliated because, of course, they'd been sitting there watching me ball up a little <laughs> aluminum foil and yeah. stick it in my mouth and chew on it. And so oh, he thought it would be funny to gosh. give me a ball of paper. And uh, and I, I looked at him and I said, that won't make my mercury feelings do the same thing. <laughs> he didn't think that was funny. Um, no, I, was, I didn't say that. I was humiliated, though, and oh, I think gosh. that's when I was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be putting all this stuff in there. <laughs> You'd think the nickel would have done it? Nope. That was not that it. Wasn't it. <laughs> it that wasn't like it. It's like the money. You just got to keep filling the <laughs> filling the void. That had nothing to do with your original question. No, but that was a really great but, twist on what, what I mean, that, that I, I'm very happy with how this conversation ended. 
But I did believe that gum was going to stay in there for a long time. And if that's true, I probably have a fair amount of my stomach that is set aside for like a rubber band ball. gum buildup. Yeah. Because I, I mean, I think we, I think we, chew, I, I don't know, do we chew more gum when we were younger? Because I, than kids do now. I don't. So I feel like I, I had like bubblicious on me at all yeah, times. Yeah. Or like bubble tape. Did you ever have bubble tape? They still make that of stuff, course. by the way. Yeah. So, or fruit stripe gum. Fruit stripe is the best gum in the world for, for seven two and seconds. Half seconds. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and then it is absolutely awful after Worst. that. I, I will say, though, that what I never understood was why why baseball card packs had to have gum that tasted like you were chewing on a on actual Lego. baseball cards? Yeah. Like a, like a Lego with, with dust on it <laughs> mm. or, or, you know, like powdered yes. sugar. But yes. and, and yeah, and, and if you chewed on it just long enough, you might get a small piece of chewy gum. But, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. that, that was... I like the soft, big bubble issues. You could blow big yes. bubbles. That was. Yes. And um, apparently that and bubble issues, by the way, only stays in there for three years. I don't know if you know that. No, no. I'm going to I'm going to put that one on the Internet. If you have a topic you'd like us to discuss on Open Record or an issue you think we should investigate. I love that I'm talking about issues we should investigate after I just talked about. Did you know I sucked out a nickel? <laughs> but if you do have uh, any of that, send us an email. Fox6investigators at fox.com. That is Fox, the number six, investigators at fox.com. As always, thank you to all the people who make this podcast possible. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, and of course, Sarah Smith. Please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't already. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. With that, I'm Brian Polson. We'll be back again next week. Mm-hmm.